0: good evening let me try that one more time good evening there we go I know it's been a long day I'll try not to make it longer it might be longer time-wise but hopefully there will be something in what happens there's already been something as we worship the Lord with song but um, as I'm looking around the room even though some of you are masked I know you're similar to each other in a lot of ways But I also know you're different. That's just how it is. Ruth and I have these four children, and we have 12 grandchildren. And oftentimes, with the four kids, we would would look at them and say, Do these kids come out of the same gene pool? Because they're so different from each other in their personalities, how they respond, the tracks that they run on. And so, this theme about how do different personalities approach God? or hear God? Do they do that in differing ways? The resounding response to that is yes. All you have to do is look at the disciples that Jesus had. This this is a cross section. They're all from the same county, essentially, in Galilee, but they're very different kinds of personalities. Nobody could be probably more different than Andrew and Peter. Andrew is the one who brings one at a time, and Peter is the guy who does this and all of that. So, We learn in different ways, don't we? Some of us learn by seeing it. Some of us learn uh, by auditory means, by hearing it. Some of us learn by doing it. Have a friend who who was principal of a Christian school in Fremont, California. That's in the larger San Francisco Bay Area. And they were known for their basketball team. And they had two seven-foot guys on their high school basketball team So I had a friend at that time, Claude Terry, who was a Stanford basketball star who went on to be with the Atlanta Hawks and with the Nuggets. And he at that time was coach of Seattle Pacific University uh, basketball team. And I said, talk to me about how basketball players learn, to, because you think about in the sports world, you learn by doing. That's why you have practice. You, You run through. It's not just in your head. It's not just on a chart. And he he said, you know, I've always thought it was always hands-on learning by doing, but one of these seven-footers, tremendous player, but when we ran the plays, he would just run into guys. He turned the wrong way. And one day I called him in and I I said to him, why can't you, what seems to be the problem here? And he said, coach, if you could just take a four-by-six card and sketch it out, on a card. Just do the little X's and whatever you do, Just do it on a card and give it to me. I can do this. He said, I sketched out the basic plays on a card, came back next practice, did it like that. Because even though mostly people did it the other way, he did it this unique way. I have a friend who uh, came to the University of Illinois when Ruth and I were church planters there back in the 60s and through the 70s. His name was David Householder. And he and his wife had come to the University of Illinois for him to get his doctorate after 10 years of missions in South Asia, mostly in Nepal. One of the most, probably one of the top 10 creative guys I know. Not just as he's smart, but he was a ventriloquist. I mean, I was with him once in a McDonald's and he said, Hi, Dick. And I looked up and I'm talking to a Big Mac box. You know, you're doing this with that and it just freaked me out. But, but he has a whole thing that he did with kids. He's tremendous at that. But he did his dissertation on how do people learn. And one of the things that I thought he found, discovered, was, um, well, I called him today in Marietta, Georgia. It's outside Atlanta. I hadn't talked to him for quite a while. And um, I said, I remember you saying that you studied right-brain, left-brain stuff when you did your dissertation. I said, yes. And I said, I think I remember you saying that right-brain people, who tend to be more uh, intuitive, right-brain people uh, are about feelings and visualization and imagination and rhythm and holistic thinking and arts, right-brain. And left-brain people tend to be thinking in words and sequencing and mathematics and facts and logic. I said, I think I remember you saying that in your surveys and things that right-brain people would tend toward prayer meetings and left-brain people would tend toward Bible studies. Now again, that's not absolutely... I I really get nervous about speaking categorically about stuff because it it also shows that that women, you women, you use both sides of your brain better than we do, and so I don't want to go there. I want to keep it in this category where... No, I'm just kidding you with that. But... When I read an assessment like this, I find myself looking at this, um, these uh, styles, sort of like strength finders. Some of you know strength finders, in, or some of you like the Enneagram, or these things where you assess your personality and how you think about stuff. And I find myself in more than one category, but... I, I land most. I'm not a naturalist. I'm not sitting on top of the mountain. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a sensate, perhaps, or a contemplative. Ruth is more contemplative. She thinks deeply about things. That, but um, I'm in that category he talked about tonight. I'm in the category of intellectual, conceptual people. I don't consider myself an intellectual, classically, in terms of an academic. But I do enjoy discovery. I do enjoy tracking down things. I love questions. I like questions so much that when Ruth and I are with other people and I'm just barraging people with questions, she will say, "You don't have to answer every question Dick asks." So, but but I like the who, why, where, when, what. I love those questions and and of people like me, and I'll, I'll use myself as an example tonight, not as a great example, but I'll use myself as an example. And some of you might identify with this category more than maybe some of the others. But even if you don't, it'll help you understand folks like me, okay? Um, somebody has said, if the mind is not engaged for a person like me, then worship will never take off if the mind is not engaged if i'm not tracking with the content so for me then when i'm in a worship setting with musicians the words the lyrics the theology of a song of the hymn it matters to me okay Um, there's a song in the united methodist hymnal written by a fellow named bobby robinson i called him bobby his name was robert robinson born in 1735 died in 1790 apparently he was a headstrong boy his dad died when he was a young teen and by the time he was 14 his mother sent him as an apprentice barber to london at the age of 14. apparently he struggled there and fell in with with a gang of what they called hood, hoodlums you know people who were causing mischief and they were going to go and sort of break up an evangelistic meeting, make fun of this fellow who was preaching in London by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield became one of the pr- primary, pr- premier preachers in the 1700s on the East Coast of the United States. Great awakening because of George Whitfield and his anointing, if you will. And what happened is they went in to cause mischief. And and he got tagged by the Holy Spirit in that meeting. Now, he didn't come to faith that night. It took him three years to come to faith. And by that time, he was in his early 20s. And at the age of 22, in 1757, he wrote these words. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above, praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Then it goes on to the second verse. Some of you have heard this phrase. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. And the next stanza is, O to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now, like a fetter, like a binding, bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander, Lord. I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. See, when I hear those words, I get all jazzed up. I'm saying, well, okay. What throws me off is that line that says, here I raise my Ebenezer. So we have this church plant. It's a Sunday night. We had Sunday night services, a couple of hundred folks, and I'm leading. And back in the day, we used to have an organ or a piano, and somebody would lead like this, and everybody would sing and so forth. So we're singing. We get to this phrase, here I raise my Ebenezer, and a University of Illinois professor from the engineering department is sitting like right over there, and he raises his hand in the middle of the song. He says, pastor, and I stop the song. His question was this because I think he was conceptual too. His question was, pastor, what the heck is an Ebenezer? (laughs) And I said, well, that's an old Hebrew word that means stone of help. It means that hitherto or to this place, the Lord has helped me. And so we explained it that way. Professor Dave wasn't a contemplative. He wasn't one who sat and just sort of basked in the presence of God. Not that he couldn't, but that's that's not the thing he led with. He was a conceptual, and a conceptual person tends to chew on a verse or explore it or push the boundaries with it, sort of like hard candy, if you will. A conceptual person will say, why does it say that? Or where does that word come from? I find myself a lot in Scripture. It'll say something, and I say, why did, why did Jesus say that? Or, or why did that guy do that? And so I have to dig in and sort of find out what it is. So a conceptual uh, learner loves to explore harder questions not frustrated or threatened by ambiguity. If you don't always get it solved, oftentimes we can hold two things and not have to come to a conclusion right away, and it doesn't have to be tidy. I'm looking for inputs, inputs or perspectives or answers or better questions. I like talking with older people. Now, I'm running out of people who are older than I am, but I like talking to older people who are scarred. I like talking to people that I consider have wisdom about life. And the scripture talks a lot about wisdom, and that's where the conceptual track kind of lands. In the Old Testament, Solomon, who was the son of King David, could ask for anything he wanted. You can read this passage in 1 Kings 3. I'm just going to read you a few verses. So 1 Kings 3, 7 through 14. Solomon has gone up to a high place to offer sacrifice, and he has this conversation with God. And this is what he says in verse 7. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count her number. So give your servant a discerning heart, to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who's able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I'll give you what you have not asked for both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you'll have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. He didn't just ask for knowledge. He didn't ask for a few more shekels of whatever it was, or a few more horses or a few more chariots. He asks for discernment and wisdom. I would submit to you tonight that we live in a world drowning, drowning, In knowledge and opinion and theories, we are dying for lack of wisdom. And as we sit before the Lord, whatever the style, whatever the approach, contemplative, naturalist, enthusiast, traditionalist, all of these, we need to be a people who are wise in him. There's a whole category in the Old Testament called wisdom literature. There are three books in particular, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job when you read those books you can't just read the you read them and you say whoa okay there's some stuff going on there that's real life there are real responses to difficulties there are real responses to how we think about things in the new testament interestingly enough the one book that's called wisdom literature is the one that we're learning about on the weekends the letter from james because it has a lot of the proverbs kind of thing in it listen to how proverbs talks about getting wisdom proverbs 1 5 through 7 let the wise listen and add to their learning let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables the sayings and riddles of the wise the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction so how we how our minds work is at, at this central piece it's a centerpiece to how god Um, oftentimes responds to us. If we're a contemplative, if we're some person who thinks about things or sits in the present, you know, it comes to that. For a conceptual person, it sort of starts with that. That's the trigger point. That's the place I come in the door. So here is Paul speaking to the church at Philippi, and he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that is in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, J.B. Phillips was a pastor that pastored in London after the Second World War, did one of the first paraphrases of Scripture for soldiers coming back from the horrific stuff going on. And this verse he translates, Do not let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let your mind be renewed every day. So let me just do this, if you, and I've never done this in 50 plus years of what we call vocational ministry. I've never done this. And if it doesn't work out, you can tell me. You can tell me and I'll never do it again. But I just, I just want to do it because for me, I see things in pictures a lot of times. Or in, it, there's a joke in our family because I say to the, the kids, how do you see your calendar? And most of my family say, well, I see it like a calendar you know, and I flip the pages, and and they say, how do you see the calendar? I see, well, in my mind, it's sort of a, it's going to freak you out, and it's going around the world, maybe, so I see it as sort of a kidney bean, and over here is March in my mind, and maybe it starts there because that's the month I was born in, and it comes down here, and I see April, and I'm seeing my calendar, and the dates for speaking, and where I'm doing things, and this is May right here, and then it turns like this, and it goes over there through the summer, and September is kind of over there. And then this is the fall, and that's right across from me is Christmas. And then January and February are quick, and then we're back to March. Don't judge me. I'm just putting it out there. That's just So I have several, several images over the years that I've collected in pastoring work, and uh, I want to draw some for you on the screen. I'm a specialist in cave art, and so you'll see that. And... Um, this is one that I learned early on when, when Ruth and I got married. Three weeks after marriage, we loaded up the car that I got in the deal. She had a car. It was, it was what was called a Chevrolet Corvair. Does anybody know what a Corvair Are you old enough to remember what it is? <laughs> and there was a book written about it called Dangerous at Any Speed or something like that. And it was a rear engine car. We loaded that baby up and drove 2,000 miles to Wheaton College Graduate School. And when I was in grad school, I had this wonderful teacher by the name of Dr. Lois Labar. And she said, in education, this is how things should work. You have a boy. You have the boy over here. And when you teach somebody, you start with their felt needs. So you have a little class of 12-year-old kids, and you're going to be studying the Ten Commandments. That's a good thing to study. But if, if for example, his best friend, this little boy's best friend, was hit on his bike this week, and he's in the hospital, he's he's not going to be working on the Ten Commandments. How do you start where he is? And you go from his felt need to the answer in Scripture here. So it's boy, book, boy. Boy and you bring that answer back into his life, and you apply it in some way, and when you do that, then it comes back around, and that's the cycle. The cycle is felt need to the book for answers to how it applies to a real need. That's the cycle, whether you're teaching a four-year-old or teaching a 44-year-old, that's how it is. So in my preaching and teaching, from then on, that's where I started. That's how I looked at how I prepared stuff, messages, whatever it was, I'm saying in in this congregation, the the old Welch or the old Scottish evangelist, uh, John Welch said this back 200 years ago, there sits in every pew, in this case, chairs, a broken heart. And when we speak like this, I know what I am saying, I think, but I don't know what you're hearing because everybody has a different need, and we count on the Holy Spirit to to work on the felt need there, and somehow apply the the balm of Gilead, as Scripture calls it, the oil of the Holy Spirit, to those things. So that's one picture. When we think about the church, there was a a missionary in Brazil by the name of Howard Snyder, who wrote a book called The Problem with Wineskins, When Things Keep Changing. And he said, this is how the early church worked like this. And this helped me as a young pastor, and that is that there are three pieces to the early church. You have apostolic leaders, that is gifted leaders, apostles here. You have small groups. They met house to house, small groups. And you have large groups. They went up to the temple every day. If you look at this congregation, Timberline Church, that's hopefully what we have. You have leaders who are called to lead. You have the potential for small groups if we choose that. But we, then we have a larger group. This isn't, you know, a thousand people, but this is a good hefty group right here. This is a solid group of folks. And each one of those brings pieces to the table. So when, so when we were saying, how does the church work, when there were 15 people here, this model for me, the conceptual model, helped me understand things. Ruth and I took our first trip overseas when we were 29 years old. We had been married eight years by that time. When we got married, she was still 20, and I had just turned 21, and we didn't know any better. And so we got married, and it's been great most of the time, but we don't have time for that. But the, but the point is this, the point is this, that we're 29 years old. We go overseas because someone had sent us to a... Um, a conference called Adventure of Living, and it was held in Sorrento, Italy. And I had my 30th birthday in Sorrento, Italy. If you're going to turn 30, like again, do it in Sorrento. I'm just saying, it's a very cool place. And it was there, I had never been in a small group. I wasn't raised in a congregation that did small groups. As a kid, that's not what we did and there was a guy there by the name of Lyman Coleman who introduced me to this concept. This concept, and those of you who have heard me teach over the years have seen this concept before, this is what we call the relational baseball diamond. Okay, We're in the month that hosts the World Series, so baseball is key for some of us. Relational baseball, and there are four things about building relationships that are key. I've had the great privilege in the last 13 years of being invited to teach high school history classes on occasion by one of our Timberliners, and she wanted me to come teach on World War II. And I said, Christine, I'm, I'm old, but I wasn't in World War II. You know, I was born in World War II. She said, yeah, but you got World War II stories. And I got in the classroom and I'm doing this World War II stories. And at one point she said, tell us that thing about building relationships. So at Fort Collins High School, I got to have this chart. Then I was invited by another Timberliner who teaches business at CSU and said, would you come to my classes and do that chart? And then the provost did something at CSU, and they, I said, can I do the chart again when we do that campus-wide live stream? And these are the four things that build relationship. First base, first base is your story you can't have a relationship if the other person doesn't know your story. And you can't tell that just by having coffee one night. This is like peeling an onion. It takes time. So when you read the scriptures, when you read the scriptures, you get story right out of the bat. Almost half of this Bible is, is story, okay? And Jesus tells us his story. When you read Luke 2, it tells us things like Who the governor was, and because they were doing a political thing like a census, that's why they had to go to Bethlehem and all this kind of stuff, right? So your story is key. When I hear your story, that's my first question that I ask people usually. And I I used to say, "Where were you born and raised?" Until I met a British guy who used to be in the captain in the Coldstream Guards. Those are the people who guard the Queen. And uh, I said, "Where were you born and raised, Anthony?" He said, "I wasn't. uh, I I was not raised." pigs are raised. I was brought up. So ever since then, I'm saying, you know, where were you? But my newer question is, where's home for you originally? Because that starts the story question. The fact that I was born in in Alameda, California, near Oakland, that's an important piece in my story. The fact that I went as a missionary kid when I was three and a half to India, that's an important piece. And when we start learning that about each other, when you say something, it becomes a Velcro ribbon when I connect with it, and, and it helps us know each other. So we start with story. Second base is affirmation, which is, a, which is a $4 word that means I like you. When I hear your story, I start knowing where to love you. And as a conceptual, as a conceptual thinker, for me to have this image in my mind when I'm talking to people or interacting with them is huge. So affirmation occurs in a lot of ways. It occurs through prayer. Highest affirmation is me praying for you or you praying for me. I think you're so important that when I go to God, the creator, this afternoon in prayer, I'll bring your name up. So affirmation, that's a big deal. Or words to you or, or getting involved in your world. That's all affirmation. As we do that, then we start doing stuff together. We say, why don't we grab a Starbucks or something? And this is covenant over here. And it doesn't have to be big covenants like marriage or joining the army or something. These are smaller things. Why don't we go on a missions trip together? Why don't we just go hike tooth? Or why don't we be in a quilting group? Ruth would like the quilting thing. So that's covenant. And, and you can see Jesus in each of these places. Here is the God who knows our story and still wants us. Here is the God who affirms us, finds us in the silliest, saddest places and tags us and says, you're it. This is the God of covenant. That's his language. And then a home plate is dreaming. When you're friends, friends hold you accountable. Not just so you don't mess up. Friends hold you accountable for your dreams. The stuff you say, someday I'd like to. And you're having coffee and one of them will say, How's that thing coming, that thing you want to do? That's what friends do. So this template has become a key part of my whole life as a conceptual thinker for the last, uh, well, since 1972. Let me give you one or two others, then I'm done. And you can tell me afterwards whether this was helpful or not, or you can say, you know, I really didn't get any of that. And I say, well, you're a contemplative. That's why you didn't get that. No, I'm done. Here's one. Here's a theology triangle. I was talking to a biblical studies professor one time, and he said there are three things about life in Jesus, life of faith. The baseline is true. What's true about God? What's true about life? Then we have experiences over here. And then on this side, we have behavior. And he said you, can lurk, you could look at any Christian denomination in the country And hopefully all of them emphasize truth, but some of them emphasize experiences more than other things, and some of them emphasize behavior more than other things. And so I could write up here, whole denominational groups that emphasize one of these things or the other, but all three of these things are important for my life in Christ. And so when I'm thinking about God and approaching him We're talking about truth. We're talking about experiences of them. We're talking about behavior. One last one, and I'll hurry on. I was speaking at a conference for a group called Youth for Christ Campus Life years ago in in Anaheim, California. And they had breakout sessions. And I said, well, I'll go to one of those breakout sessions. So I went to uh, a session held by Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke was a medical doctor who was a Benedictine monk. Now, those are contemplatives, right? So he's up there on the mountains doing whatever. But he, he sketched this. He said, if, if you come from an Eastern culture, and I don't mean East Coast, I mean Eastern culture, life is this way. When you think about Buddhism and other things, it's a, it's a closed circle. If you come from a Western culture, life is a straight line like that. You're thinking about it's getting better and better or we're making progress. But when you look at the Bible, you get this kind of culture. It's a helix. It, you keep growing in him. You're going from faith to faith and glory to glory. You're going, and when he, when he drew that, it hit me. Because just weeks before, maybe three months before, somebody had come forward after a service and said, Pastor, I have this. I, I'm, I'm struggling with this thing, whatever it was. So we gathered around. We had prayer for that person and uh, really prayed that the Lord would help release them from the challenges, what it was about four weeks later after a service, same person came, same issue. We prayed again, and then about a month later, same person came, same issue. And I'm thinking, you know, either God is not doing something here, or this person isn't letting it go, or there's no growth. And it dawned on me that what was happening was that this person kept coming here and here, and each time The problem that that person was dealing with seemed to be less, seemed to be less of a problem. The other side of that is when you're growing in faith, you learn this little bit and then you grow a little more and you come back to that point and you grow a little more and you come back to that point. This particular thing made a lot of sense to me as a conceptual thinker and in dealing with people. So I've just put those things up on the board to say As a conceptual thinker, for me, those kinds of images stimulate how I approach God, how I think about God, and because I'm trying to absorb information and process it. So let me just give you three or four things in terms of what kind of information. First of all, scripture. I mean, here's a book, 1600 years of experience, 66 different books, 40 authors. And there's a cohesion to this about who God is, what he wants for me, all of that. So as I get into scripture, there are lots of ways to study scripture, aren't there? I mean, Ruth likes the one-year Bible. She's she's looking at the one-year Bible when we're at our breakfast table. Our our nephew works at a church called Life Church. In Oklahoma City, largest church in the United States, 100,000 people, 36 campuses, all this kind of. Stuff. But they created what is called the U-Version Bible, And on your phones, you can get U-Version. There are all kinds of study plans for that. When I was in grad school, I met an old missionary from Mongolia. He said, "Here's what I do. I read a little from the Old Testament each day. I read a little from the New Testament each day. I read five psalms. And one proverb, because you got 150 Psalms and you got 30. And in a month, you can go through Psalms and Proverbs. That's how he did it. There's a book that I commend to you, written by a fellow named Doug Stewart and his friend Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee is a friend of mine. He's a bit older than I am. These are textual scholars. And it's called Reading the Bible for All It's Worth. Reading the Bible for All It's Worth. And it's sort of a handbook on how to look at reading scripture. And it's helpful. If I have one thing to say about my life in this book is that I wish I had memorized more of this when I was younger. I wish I had memorized more of this when I was, may I say that again? I wish I had memorized more of this when I was younger because I used to be more like Velcro brain. I, you know, thick would stick. Now it's Teflon brain. You say something to me, and the, two minutes later I said, could you say, that, what was that you said again? Anyway, just a thought. The other thing that I think really has nurtured my life in, um, in this trajectory is history, reading history, or listening to history. If, if you're an auditory learner, listening to books, you know, that you can download is a big deal. So, and church history in particular, how did, how did revival movements work? How did people in Scripture and people in church history see themselves as minorities? Because they were minorities in their world. Let me just give you a, a hint of what I'm talking about. When you read church history, it says that the word that the early church church uh, tagged or, or grabbed for describing themselves, this is a Greek word, and it was ekklesia, Ekkileo means to call out. And so when you go to seminary or you go to Bible college or you go to... They say you're the called out ones. That's what church means, right? Now, they could have chosen any one of a number of other words. They could have chosen synagogue. The, anyway, what's different? What's interesting about ecclesia is that that's the word that the Athens community used for their city council. So conceptually, I'm saying how do i see myself in this city when i go to pastor's conferences i will ask him this question how many of you see yourself as a leader in the church they all you know that's what i'm called to be i ask this question how many of you so, see yourself as a leader in your town like equivalent to the superintendent of schools or the head of the carpenter's union or the city manager hardly anybody raises his or her hand and what I'm saying is that when you read church history, you see people in leadership in ways, in cultures that uh, stimulate how we think about things. Um, m- for me, missions reading, reading missionary biographies has been a huge stimulus to my own faith, especially the missionary biographies from the 17 and 1800s. Uh, men and women of enormous courage. My friend Mart Batterson wrote a book some years ago called All In, And the opening story is missionaries back in the 1800s, in particularly when they went to hard places, would pack their belongings in coffins because they knew it was a one-way trip. They weren't going to fly home. That's not how it was going to be. And this one fellow, Milne was his name, went to the New Hebrides. That's out in the South Pacific where there were cannibals. And nobody who had ever gone there had survived. He did survive However, that happened by the grace of God. And 35 years later, when he died, they buried him in the, in, the, in the heart of the village and they put up this marker. It said, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Well, when I read biographies like that, that, that jazzes me up. That's his, let's, let's do stuff like that, right? The whole, the whole idea of reading about great awakenings in this country, I get asked all the time, what do you think about the country? What do you think the answer is for the ills of the nation? And my response is essentially the same. The answer to that is local, and the answer to that is another great awakening. I mean, there have been sweeps of the Holy Spirit in this country and other countries around the world that changed the culture for a time, not forever, but there was one back in the middle of the 1800s where Rochester, New York um, was so touched by revival, by the Spirit of God changing people's lives, that they closed the jail for five years. You say, that's crazy. Well, it may be crazy, but it's history. That's true. In the the Welsh revival, uh, whole communities transformed, and the police Their main job came to direct traffic at gospel gatherings when people gathered to hear the good news about Jesus. When you read that kind of stuff, when you read those things, it's a profound encouragement in our own spirits. I'm going to run on and just say, you can read about theology. There are books to read. If you talk to Pastor uh, Brent, there are books that can be read that that are little sort of compendiums, a little short. You don't have to go to a seminary class to do this. Or apologetics, determining uh, just how to defend the faith. Anybody know the name Tim Keller? Tim Keller pastored for some, he's pastor emeritus at Redeemer Church in in New York City. He has a book called The Reason for God. If you want to go with the British, you can go with C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. These are books that, you know, are decades old, many of them, but they're true then and they're true now. So, and creeds, creeds help you. I'm I'm not a huge creedal person. I don't, I wasn't brought up in a church that quoted creeds. But there are a couple that would be important for you to read. You can just Google this online. The Apostles' Creed. Some of you grew up in churches where you where you said that, where you recited that. And the Nicene Creed. I don't need to explain what they are. But um, the Apostles' Creed was used for baptism. When somebody was baptized, baptized, they quoted this. Let me just, it'll be on the screen. This is how it reads. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, Descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, and by Catholic it means universal, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. You could take any one of those thoughts and ponder it for a long time and dig into scripture and see what it means. I have only heard this quoted in my life and I've seen a lot of people baptized. I have helped baptize a lot of people. I've only heard it quoted one time and it was in this church by a young boy who was baptized in the other auditorium and, uh, his name was Keaton Cunningham. That, that man and his wife thought it, this was important enough to have their boy. I mean, it blew me out. I'm just saying, what's going on here? What's going on here is what has happened for hundreds of years in the Christian church around the world. So, the temptations for people like me are simply that sometimes people like me love controversy. Uh, I don't think I do, but there are some who do, who, who say, you know, I need to win this theological argument. I, I need to make sure we get the words right or whatever. Second thing is, uh, sometimes we are content with knowing rather than doing. Well, I know some good stuff, so I don't, you know, get out there and do the action. Ex- and the third thing, and I'm, I'm guilty here, is that sometimes you can, you can love the pictures you can love the concepts, you can like, and you like explaining them to other people. And if you're not careful, it'll make you proud. That's, a, you know, well, I got this. And, and, it, and it becomes about making the point or winning an argument. And those are the traps you have to be careful of. So at the heart of this kind of person, at least like me, is a question that's based in curiosity. There's one question I ask about this book. About behavior, about relationship, about the helix process, about the church. There's one question that keeps popping back up again and again in my mind, and it's a preschool question, and that's why. If you have brought up, or well, you've all been two or three years old, but that's your question why? And parents get tired of answering that question. They answer it, well, because. But the fact is that that question, Is at the heart of how a conceptual person grows I think it's not the only question and the the band's gonna come up and and they're gonna play while we share in communion but I ask questions and I've already mentioned this I ask questions why why does scripture record that why does scripture tell that story why did God do that why did the person act that way and that's the stimulus for me in learning about God and I I tell you what sometimes I've talked to the Lord and said and said stuff like Lord you need to help me here because I don't get it I'm walking out of a hospital room where there's a two-year-old that has brain cancer and I'm sitting in my car pounding on the wheel saying Lord you better know about this because I don't know about this as the, as the ad says, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. I would encourage you, even if you don't consider yourself that person, to use it, to stretch it, to let it help you know God more deeply. So it's the night before the crucifixion and Jesus is passing around the elements, what we call the elements, the bread and the wine. He's given, he's given his last talk to the disciples One of them, a fellow named Judas, has bailed because he's got other business, right? And Jesus passes out the the elements, the, the bread and the wine. And my question when I read that is, why those things? Why the bread and the wine? And I discover, as I continue to study, that the table is central to the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? Well, it's the place where everybody's welcome at the table. It's the place where you don't have to clean up before you come. My mom used to say, Dick, supper's ready. Go wash your hands and clean up. And that's good. I needed to do that. But Jesus says, Dick, I want you to come to my table, and I'll clean you up as you come. The table is central to this, the family, okay? And bread was the staple food of the day, and it symbolizes our oneness, our communion. And then the wine was the wine of a covenant. And, and Jesus Jesus says it this way. And I close with this. And then I'm going to ask that you just go and get the elements for yourself. Come back to your seats and, and receive the communion on your own, in your own way. And when you have done that, then stand and join in worshiping and song with the band. But, but I love this. There's a thing called a suzerain covenant covenant in the Old Testament where you have a king and a subject and the king essentially says this here's the deal here's the covenant these are the guidelines and I'll do it all and I can respond to that covenant or I can reject that covenant but I cannot change the terms of that covenant so i'm a kid sitting in a service like this singing the song jesus paid it all all to him i owe sin has made a guilty stain he made it white as snow here is the god who says let's take this bread and drink this cup and it's the it's the battle cry of the kingdom to be together it is the it is the commitment of the king that he creates a new covenant with us and I get to accept or reject it. Each of us sitting here tonight, I believe, has accepted those terms. And so now we get to celebrate those terms by receiving these elements symbolically and, and in reality, that in this moment in time, whatever it is that we bring to the Father, and we say, here I am one more time. And he says, that's wonderful. I've been expecting you. God bless you. Lord Jesus, help us, even as we share in this communion time, to be aware of your presence. However we approach you, let it be meaningful in this moment in a way that only you can create. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.